Hello, I am Mary Walter, and you are listening to the Team Gurus podcast, where we feature wide-ranging discussions about the issues that matter on teamwork and leadership. We have real conversations with experienced and successful leaders focusing on the practical insights that help anyone wanting to be a better team member or team leader. I'm Brian Buford. Hello and welcome to the Team Gurus podcast. I am Mary Walter and I'm joined by Brian Buford. Hi everyone, great to have you here. We are so excited today to meet with Susan Goss-Brown, who is currently the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Susan has had an amazing career. She was a retail icon prior to joining the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. She spent more than 25 years at GAP. She held various leadership roles across North America. She worked with Athleta, Banana Republic, and the GAP brand. And she's transitioned now to currently leverage her savvy for business operations, her passion for philanthropy, and her lived experience in her current role where she's been at for nine months. Susan previously led the foundation at Gap Inc. She was a president where she was responsible for leading the board of trustees and overseeing the philanthropic and social impact work for Gap Inc. She has served as a mentor and most recently as a member of the advisory board for the Center of Equity, Gender, and Leadership at the Berkeley Haas School of Business. Susan will be taking on the assignment as board chair for College Spring, a nonprofit dedicated to creating equal opportunity for low-income students preparing for standardized admissions tests. Clearly, Susan has a consistent track record of service and of making our world a better place. So we're thrilled to have you with us. Welcome, Susan, to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, That was quite an introduction. I love retail icon. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure or anything. (laughs) That's how we see you, Susan. I mean, I think you and I met when you were in retail and to see you have made this transition into the impact that you're having in the world is is just incredible. And I can't wait to hear more about it. Well, thank you. And and thank you for being so generous. And um, I'm, I'm excited to be here and really happy to talk about my journey. Well, good. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Tell us about your background, maybe a little bit about where you grew up and and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, it's funny when I when I joined Gap Foundation, uh, there was a I I remember meeting with someone who was helping me um, kind of put together my my story, you know, um, thinking that and feeling that I had a, a very interesting background, which is not something that I I've really ever acknowledged, but um, I, you know, as I thought more about it and, you know, I think in the last, the last two years, I think, you know, having really spent some time in reflection, uh, my, I, I love my history. I love my origin story. And, um, and so I, you know, I love to share that I am, I'm the youngest daughter of Southern parents and, you know, those Southern parents who grew up in, Atlanta, Georgia, at a time when it was not easy to grow up as a Black family in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, they at the time fled uh, the South during the Great Migration, hoping to build a better life for their family. And rather than fleeing North, my family decided to flee West. And so we landed in Los Angeles, where I grew up with my four siblings. 
Um, my father was a World War II veteran and a mechanic and mom worked at a state hospital as a psychiatric technician. Um, neither were college graduates, although my mom did try. Um, she started at Spelman for a short time before moving west. Um, but, you know, my parents were married for 50 years and um, and my mom is still living today uh, with my sister and as she's 95 years old. And I'm so proud of her wow. and so proud of, of the journey that she's been on. I was, I would say, always inspired by my mom's desire for a college career. And I think that's what really drove me uh, to pursue a college degree. I'm one of two in my family that have a degree today. And I set off on that journey with, with little guidance and not a big, you know, not a clear roadmap on, on what to do and how to do it, but decided to pursue a bachelor's degree in communications, thinking that I wanted to be a political correspondent, believe it or not, and which is a whole other story. You know, I, my family was, uh, I, I would say, very political. Um, but it, it actually turns out that I didn't really like being in front of the camera. And so um, because I was already working uh, full time in retail while, while in school, I decided to uh, pursue retail. I, you know, kind of threw the dice and I thought I tried my luck at a retail career. And it turns out that that was probably one of the best decisions that I've made in my life. As you mentioned, Mary. Uh, reading my bio, um, I spent a long time in, in in retail leading field teams, and that experience has been so enriching. Not only because of all the people that I've had the opportunity to meet and work with and be inspired by, but I just I learned so much and was exposed to so many things that I think I otherwise would not have been exposed to. So that experience um, really was life changing, um, as was the experience to to move out of running stores into, you know, taking a risk and, and moving into philanthropy and, and running Gap Foundation. Um, that was a, a an intentional move on my part to see if I could apply the learnings that I'd had over the last 25 years into something that I saw as being very different um, and to add a little more meaning to what I was doing, a, you know, a little more heart and soul into into what my day in day out was. Um, and so stepping into Gap Foundation was also a really big challenge and a great learning experience as well. And I think that has parlayed me now into what I'm doing today at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I'm struck listening to your answer, Susan, by how often I've seen you in front of a microphone. Given that you didn't really want to be on camera, it seems like you've gotten very comfortable with that through the years. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think the pandemic has helped. Being on Zoom and having a conversation like this is so much easier than being in front up on stage. Um, and so, um, and, and I'm probably just a little more comfortable in my skin today. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and what has been the impact biggest impact you've had so far? Um, so I, inter interestingly, at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I have, I have two, two roles, actually. I, I am the chief diversity officer, and this is, um, this is a new position for LLS, and so I'm kind of the inaugural uh, chief diversity officer, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that, but my, the other part of my role is I also coincidentally lead our 
our field organization, our regional um, organization, and in in nonprofit, that organization is the the team that is responsible for revenue generation for for the nonprofit. And so it, it's very similar to leading field teams in in many many ways. But um, you know, I, I, the one thing that is unique about my role, specifically as chief diversity officer, is like. Unlike um, most organizations that have that role report into the head of human resources or the chief people officer, uh, Troy Dunmire, who is my my boss um, and who is the chief operating officer, he and I had a long conversation about the importance of diversity not being seen as a as a kind of a side strategy to what an organization does and, and, and how a culture is established at an organization, but rather that it really be integrated into the business within an organization. And so um, we made a very conscious decision together to align diversity, equity, and inclusion with the business and attach it to the biggest part of the business, the revenue generating team. Um, and, and, and we think that that is helping us to really integrate you know, the, the concepts of diversity and inclusion and equity throughout the organization um, and across everything we do. Terrific impact, both with the field and with um, your focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm so excited about what you're going to accomplish there. What I'm curious, Susan, what surprised you about moving into the nonprofit world from being on the business side and retail side? I think that's a great question. I think many people, many people make the assumption that um, either they belong in nonprofit or they don't, right? Whether or not, whether or not they're thinking about the skills necessary to, to do nonprofit work, I think a lot of people automatically exclude themselves as being capable of, of joining a nonprofit and having impact. And I think that that's a longstanding um, myth, I think, about nonprofit. There are many, many similarities of leading a retail organization and, and leading a nonprofit organization. I think the biggest differences is one is, which sounds trite, for-profit, and one is really more for a mission. Um, and so, but, but the, the skill sets required and the leadership capability required to do both is very similar. Um, but I would say maybe the biggest surprise for me within the nonprofit space has, has probably been uh, the idea that, uh, is, again, I would say the myth that nonprofit is not as challenging or as difficult. Um, quite the contrary, I think it can be more challenging and more difficult because you are you're working with more limited resources because you're really trying to take all of you know, the, the revenue that you might generate or the fundraising that you might generate and put that toward the mission rather than, than spending it on overhead. And I think that is an expectation that the industry has of nonprofits, which might actually be the wrong expectation to have of a nonprofit. If we want nonprofits to do good work and meaningful work and have the reach and the scale, then we should be encouraging nonprofits to spend a little bit on overhead and on operating costs so that they can get 
the right leaders. They can get the skilled workers. They can do the meaningful work um, in a way that really, really will drive the impact that I think all nonprofits are trying to do. So, um, I, you know, I would I would say there there are a lot of myths of not only nonprofit work, but how nonprofits should operate and how we expect them to operate. And, and I, I, I think we should start to reframe that. And, and instead, I would ask, wouldn't we want a CEO of a nonprofit to make just as much money for doing good in the world as a CEO for a for-profit that might not always be doing good for the world, but might be polluting the world or, you know. So I, I think there's some reframing that we need to do about the nonprofit space and, and the potential um, for what they can do and what they can contribute to society and what they can contribute to, you know, building meaningful careers for people as well. What a crazy concept that we would pay a CEO, you know, for their work fixing things and making the world a better place. I love that idea, Susan. I mean, exactly. that makes so it's much like sense. Teachers. Yeah, it's like, what, it's like right. teachers. Like, let's pay teachers what they deserve. They're, they're, they're you know, and helping to build the future. Um, and so, yeah, we often don't want to invest in those types of things. I, and I think we should start to change that, that viewpoint. It's interesting. I, you know, a number of my clients um, are in the nonprofit space in both teams that I've worked with as well as coaching. And the conversations are almost the same as the ones I'm having in the for-profit business folks that I work with. I mean, whether it's working with your board or influencing peers or um, having to be innovative with budgets and solutions, uh, they're really, you're right. There's really so much crossover. And I like the thought of, especially as people think about their career path, that it doesn't have to be one, one way or that you have to choose one lane. I think you've done a nice job demonstrating that. Curious, from your experience, when it comes to diversity and equity inclusion work, what, what have organizations gotten wrong? Maybe where have they gotten off track? And what kind of work in that space have you found makes a meaningful impact? Yeah, that's also, um, I think that's a, actually a really relevant question because uh, so many, both for-profit and non-profit are, I think, really starting to either tap a little more deeply into their DEI efforts today or are picking up DEI as a new, a new area of focus. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the great thing about both of those scenarios, whether it is an existing program within, a, within your, your business um, or a new program within your business, I think the intended goodwill of others is is there. Every everyone wants to do the right work. Um, when I when I took the the role at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, you know, I I I don't I'm I'm not a trained DEI professional. You know, I I have lived experiences, and I absolutely uh, incorporated the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion into how I have always led and how I have always, you know, always uh, seen the world. Um, it's always been a lens for me. But I, I think that as I step into this role, I was very conscious of what I think organizations or the way organizations have approached it hasn't always been successful, right? I, I think there's always been somewhat of a a compliance lens to DEI. And I don't think compliance changes culture or creates a culture of compliance. And I don't think we want DEI 
to be about compliance. We want DEI to be a mindset and a and and again a lens by which we view the world and by which we see opportunities. And so I think one of the one of the biggest errors is to treat DEI as as such, right? To treat it as as a compliance thing, to check it off the list. Um, you know, I, I, it's it's so clear that this is not easy work, and and um, and it can be really frustrating. And you know, I think it's particularly frustrating when we want to so very quickly tie the impacts of DEI to performance and outcomes. And you know, I I think it's very important to have a case, a business case for DEI, and there is a business case for DEI, but I think. More importantly, the reason we should pick up this work is just it's morally the right thing to do. And we all want to be better global citizens and, and, and contributors to humanity. So I think, you know, any organization that wants to do this for compliance sake, that, that, that I would advise against it. I think um, any organization who wants to do it quickly, I would advise against it, you know, it's taken us a very long time to get where we are, and it's it's going to take a long time to undo where we are, you know, and to right-size things. So I think patience is really important in this work, and perseverance is really important in this work. And, and I would say very, you know, we have to have a thoughtful exploration and evaluation of what is critical to be able to do this work in a meaningful way. Um, and that requires voices. It requires not just the voice of the team around you, the immediate team, it requires the voice of leaders. It requires the voice of you know, teams and workers and frontline and constituents and communities, et cetera, if we really want to do this work and do it in a way that is um, meaningful and sustainable. I was speaking with an executive client last week, and he was dealing with a very visible, kind of publicly known, challenging situation from multiple angles in this space. He and we talked about the need for, as you mentioned, patience, but also a willingness to just stay focused on really what mattered, what the true north was, the principles, the values, and the ethics, and to not get distracted by the voices or the chatter and the tweets and the, that long-term focus on just trying to do the right thing, regardless of all of the noise is so important. I'd assume that you'd agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that pressure can be difficult, Absolutely. right? I, I think it's, yeah. it's also very difficult in the nonprofit space with, you know, when you think about donors and, you know, the thing yeah. we have to make sure we do is not tie diversity, equity, and inclusion to, um, to a, a political agenda, right? This is a humanitarian yeah. agenda. This is about being human and caring for for all of humanity and doing what's right for all of humanity. And sometimes it's hard to pull those two things apart. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's where we can get stuck. So you're absolutely right, Brian. Staying focused on the true north, being clear on what that is, and, and not being willing to compromise that, but also but also having grace, right? Because not everybody is going to come along at the same time. Um, so having grace and understanding that and being patient with people 
as well as being patient with the process, I think is really important. We have to win hearts and minds in this work. Mm-hmm. And you don't do that by pushing people or, or you know, putting people on the defense. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's taking time to demonstrate the care, the patience, the grace for, for everyone um, mm-hmm. as, we, as we learn together. And we, quite honestly, we are learning together Right. I, I, I grew up with, with, you know, brown skin and have lived with this, but I am still learning. We are all still learning. And I think that's probably one of the most important pieces of this work is continue to learn, continue to ask questions, continue to explore and never stop um, that learning. At its essence. I think psychology is the study of differences, right? It's how are people different in multiple ways. And it's so evident in studying psychology, how people are different in so many different ways in multiple dimensions. We're such a diverse society. We have so many different customers and customer needs. It's just, uh, it's in, in some ways, it's, it's I, I experience frustration with people that don't necessarily get it and because we're such a diverse world and such a diverse country yeah. in so many different ways. And, and, and it's so interesting because in that diversity, we're also very much the same, you know, and if you, if mm-hmm. you think about mm-hmm. humanity, I think I, I read something just recently that, you know, that our, our DNA, regardless of what our ethnicity is or our race is, is more, is like 99.9% the same, you know, and so yeah. like, yeah. we really aren't that different. And yet we have so many different lived experiences that if we take the time to ask and learn and listen, enrich all of us, right? And, and um, we're all the better for it if we, if we take that time and can be open to that. I love what you said about patience and, and grace. And, you know, it's funny because I think, as you referenced, there's such a strong business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's also such, as you said, a moral case that's so strong. And I love the thought of patience and grace too. I, I just was, uh, we've, in this space, when we see things go wrong, it's so terrible <laughs> often in so many ways, both um, ethically, morally, and, and from a business perspective. And I saw something recently saying, you know, the best thing you can do if somebody, let's say, makes a mistake to be the kindest that we can is uh, don't fire anybody within 24 hours. I, we've seen that happen over the last couple of years where people are just fired immediately um, without any investigation. And I think having taking a breath for a moment um, and really doing the work of uh, researching what really happened and what's really the appropriate outcomes. And, you know, that kind of uh, reaction, I think, implies no grace and no patience. And I think it's slowing down, really thinking through difficult challenges, as you were talking about, Brian, and making sure that you respond ethically and correctly, and then bring everyone along in the journey, as you're saying, Susan, it's very powerful, very powerful. Yeah, and you know, I I I think that um listen, it, it it is um it is a reality that we all have bias. I I you know I, I we did a training at at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society recently about implicit bias, and the facilitator said if you live in this, if you have a brain and you live in society, then you have bias. You know, and a lot of that we're unaware of. And when you're unaware of it, 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 it might show up. And so we have to recognize that, wait a second, you know, I, 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 I don't think I was aware of that or I don't, you know, this certainly was not intentional. 
Um, and so we just have to, we have to help each other recognize, understand, and grow from those, those scenarios. And yes, there are instances where there is implicit bias, you know, for sure, or explicit bias, excuse me, for sure. But more often than not, implicit bias is what is taking place and, 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 and we're unconscious of that. And so the more we continue to explore what we believe, what we, what we're reading, the more we read information from all sides and not one side, the better off we are and the more we're aware of those biases and the more we can start to mitigate them and how we treat one another. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Susan. That's great. Uh, I want to hear about College Spring. I think this organization sounds amazing. Uh, you're taking over, serving as the chair, I believe, for College Spring. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work? Yeah, I, you know, um, I love, I love this nonprofit. You know, College Spring is very, very personal to me. Uh, I shared earlier that, you know, um, how I made my way to college was maybe not as orthodox. And, um, you know, when I, when I think about the family experience we have with college, I, you know, didn't have that to lean on. And, um, we had very, at the time, I had very little advice and, and or advising from school counselors myself. And so I, I consider myself so lucky to have made it to college. I really, I think back on those times and I, I don't know how I did it, quite honestly, because I, quite, I, I didn't even take an SAT test. I, I, I had good grades. I was a good student. And I think maybe because of my GPA at the time, I didn't have to take a test to get into a state college. And so I was lucky. I, I found my way through. But I, I often think about all of the, the, the colleagues that I had in school that did not make it to college and, and didn't have someone to kind of guide them and direct them. And, um, and I think that's really unfortunate, you know, so the, the, the reason I'm with College Spring is because I, I am so passionate about the idea of every high school student finding their way to college with confidence. And I think confidence starts with that test, the SAT. I know there's a lot of controversy about whether or not the SAT should still exist and about the origins of the SAT. Truth of the matter is whether or not, whether or not a school is test optional or requires the SAT, even a test optional school, the SAT having a score gives a student an advantage and having an advantage is important. So, you know, College Spring is doing that work, right? They're, they're focused on equipping schools and teachers, you know, with, with, test prep and college knowledge um, around curriculum to prepare students to really succeed on the exams and get into college. And, you know, the higher those test scores, whether it's the ACT or the SAT, the more opportunity it gives students and the more access it gives, especially students from underserved communities, you know, it gives them access to financial aid, stronger you know, social support, and that leads to higher graduation rates. And if we really want to talk about what will make a difference in this world, one of those things is getting more students to graduate, making sure they get a better job, making sure they are able to establish, you know, a, a, a more solid um, um, economic future for themselves and their future families. And, and to me, 
the more we do that, especially with underserved students, the more we start to equalize, you know, the world and 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 create a more inclusive um, uh, environment and and country for all people. And so that that is why college screening matters. It's personal. It was it's it's my experience. I'm a lucky one. Not everybody is so lucky, and I want I want all students to have the opportunity for for this type of experience that I think just really sets them up for a secure financial future. I love the strategy, Susan. I'm so positive about it. And it, and you're right. I've heard a number of people say uh, that their SAT test was what got them out of their situation and allowed them, even though they were coming from, let's say, not a great school where they didn't have support, doing well on the SAT allowed them to go to schools that they wouldn't have otherwise got into. And I think what strikes me about what you said as well is this confidence issue. Right. Um, it kind of says, hey, I, I, I am here. I deserve to be here. I'm capable of being here. I mean, what a confidence boost that is to go in um, when you're coming from maybe underserved or you're not as you don't have as many tools in in your toolbox that you've been given in some other places. I think taking those students and giving them these tools so that they can then feel confident, they can feel right. like um, I'm in a great place and and I'm ready to go. I mean, what a great solution. I just absolutely love it. I think that work is so important and I'm so thankful that you're doing it. This has been a really resilient nonprofit and it's been really <laughs> fun to watch them over the last two years in the middle of a pandemic still thriving and getting better and, you know, being able to pivot and um, meet the needs both of teachers and students in a way that I think has been really remarkable um, at, a, at a really trying time. So I'm really proud of the work they're doing. You're exactly right in terms of the test being so important because they're aptitude tests, right? They assess someone's aptitude or potential and often that isn't accurately measured or reflected in their GPA or their high school. And that being said, things are changing. I just heard on the news this morning, Harvard is not requiring ACT and SAT for two years. I think higher education and the process of measurement and uh, testing and what will happen, that will all change over the next five to 10 years. But that's a, that's a really, really, really good point. Yeah. Well, in terms of your own development, would love to hear um, how have you how have you most changed uh, as a leader over time? How how have you grown? Yeah. Um, first of all, I love learning. And so growing to me is really very, very important to me. And um, I just recently took, uh, you know, one of those one of those assessments that, you know, kind of show you your strengths. We're using this for a, a development journey that we're doing with our with our teams at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I wanted to see what the experience of the participant was. So I too took the, the survey and it, it, this survey was spot on quite actually. Um, it, it, it highlights my, my strengths as being an inclusive leader and a mentor and an optimist, which I, I feel like I've known that about myself. And I feel like, you know, I, I've kind of seen that and heard that throughout my career, but 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 in, really interesting, um, there were two themes that emerged that have not always shown up for me as strengths. And, um, you know, so and I think one of them 
really as a result of pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. As I talked about leaving retail to move into philanthropy and then philanthropy into the nonprofit space, what I'm starting to see as a strength is my ability to adapt. Um, and so that is, you know, I think that's a change for me as a leader is being more adaptive and um, responsive to what is going on around me. And then um, I also really, really love seeing something that I've worked on for the last couple of years to build. Um, and it, it's pretty funny because I actually worked with Mary on this, this particular competency and that is influence and my ability to influence. And that has shown up today as a strength for me as well. And so when I think about my, so Mary, kudos to you. Um, kudos to you. Congratulations. <laughs> That's awesome. When I, when I think about the evolution, you know, over the years, I, I said this earlier on, I, I do think that I am, because of, because of the journey that I've been on, um, because of the, the, the time that I've had to reflect and, and because of my willingness to push myself outside of my comfort zone, I do, I feel like that has kind of moved me into this space now of, of being a lot more comfortable with who I am, a lot more confident. We talked about confidence, a lot more confident in who I am as a leader and, and, and really proud that, that I am a leader that that leans more on kind of the EQ side um, and leverages that to engage and, and inspire and to move people and to move process um, where that may have been something that I, I would not have um, valued as much in my earlier years. And so um, I, I think that's, that's pretty, pretty much the, the story of how I've evolved over the last you know, the last few years as a leader um, in, in whatever space I happen to be in at this stage. And I, I, I anticipate that I'll just continue to learn and continue to evolve because I'm very, I'm very interested in, you know, constantly improving. And I'm always looking for ways to do that. Terrific. And, you know, uh, I really believe in leveraging your strengths. And I think you've done that throughout your whole career. You've held on to them. You haven't let any of those go. Um, but then you've added some new tools to your toolbox, as you described, like um, influencing effectively. And what I love about that is, you know, there's some pretty good research that says the best way to get to the C-suite or CEO, the folks that do that, that add the competency that they have is an ability to learn and to grow. And not everybody has it. And so I, I would say, you know, for those listening, if you want to get to that level, being open to learning, being open to some self-awareness and figuring out where you have opportunity and then leaning into it and doing the work of figuring out what those skills look like and putting it into practice. It's just a great example. Yeah. Now, Susan, I know you didn't get there alone. Tell us about a great boss who made a difference for you. This one is so easy. It's 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 a it's a really easy question for me because um, there is someone in my past that just really stands out. I've had a lot of good bosses, but this person really really stands out. His name is William, um, and you know I I I think I valued William because he had such a great balance of both that he was incredibly incredibly smart but he also was equally emotionally intelligent. And I think sometimes, Mary, to your point, when you start to look at 
higher level leaders, C-suite leaders, you don't often find both of those. Um, and and I just, I, I think in order to really get things done, someone, you've got to have both the intellect and the emotional intelligence. And so William had a very, very high bar. Um, he was very direct and honest. Um, but at the same time, you always knew he was invested um, in your development and your growth, but he pushed and he pushed hard. And I can remember many, many tough conversations with this person um, um, that I hated at the time, but I knew he was he was having these conversations with a lot of love because he believed in me. And um, one conversation in particular, I think it was actually one of our final kind of conversations before he said, I I'm done. I'm cutting you loose. You're on your own. You've got this. Um, and he literally said that to me. And I, I remember being terrified at that time, but um, it was the best thing he could have done. But he, he also shared a quote with me. And I think this quote has probably helped a lot of people. But for me in particular, it, it really resonated. And it, it's, the, it's the quote from Marianne Williamson, um, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure and that it is our light and not our darkness that most frightens us. We are ask ourselves, who are we to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? And really the question we should be asking ourselves is, who are we not to be? And that quote, for some reason, like just, it, it punched me in the gut. It hit me in, in the heart and I realized why am I, why am I hiding myself? Why am I, why am I doubting myself? Um, I, I have every right and I have an obligation to, 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 to fully live in my potential. And um, that quote really, have, having these conversations with him and having him share that quote, I think was where I had a, a pretty dramatic pivot in my career and that really progressed me and, and accelerated, I should say, my progression. So I will always, always be grateful to William um, and what he did and, and how he leaned in uh, with me in those, in those earlier years of my career. What a great boss. I love that. And, you know, you used a word that I think is so important, which is love. And, you know, the ability, I think sometimes leaders miss the fact that if you really do have both sides of the equation, to your point, you've got this strategic capacity and intellect, and then you also have the EQ and to be able to inspire and motivate and truly care about people, um, that gets you such better results because <laughs> people are giving you so much discretionary effort and commitment, right? When And you're able to push that bar so much higher when you genuinely care about people. Uh, yeah. What a great example. Thank you so much for sharing that, Susan. Absolutely. What advice do you have for people kind of in the spirit of potential uh, and, and, and being courageous? What advice do you have for those considering a career change where they know they need to do something different? Not sure if it's a completely different industry or role, but what uh, wisdom would you share? Yeah, I think if you're thinking about it, you should do it. You know, I think that's the, that's well, the advice. If it's on your mind there, you know, I think we often don't listen to those, 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 uh, you know, the spidey senses, that voice in the back of our head, and we often ignore those, those indications um, that 
it's time to do something different. And so I really believe if, if it is in the back of your mind, you should do it. And you know what I what I have found is anytime, anytime there's been big change in my life, it has always, always propelled me forward. It's always moved me forward. And and forward doesn't always mean better, better position, higher position. Forward means learning. I've always grown from the experience. I've always gained something, whether it's new, new colleagues, new connections, new learnings, new experiences. I have always grown. And so I I would say for anyone who is thinking, I need to make a change. I want to make a change. I'm terrified to make a change evaluate, like, why are you really scared? What is holding you back? And instead of thinking about it from the perspective of fear and, and, and concern that um, I I won't, I'm giving up something, think of it from the the sense of think about all that you'll, you'll gain, right? There's a, there's an abundance to what you'll gain from making a change. And, you know, obviously be smart, be planful, but I think you gain so much more than you lose than you give up when you make a change. I think a great question someone asked me, it was a mentor regarding a career decision, something along those lines. He said, what are you waiting for? And I think when we don't have an answer to that, that that in itself is an answer and time to take action and to move yeah, forward. Yeah, and if I even... excuse me, if I go back to the quote, right? I really believe that everybody has brilliance in them. And oftentimes we're in a job that doesn't even allow our brilliance to shine. And so get out of there. Go let your brilliance shine is what I would say. You know, Um, don't hold yourself back out out of fear and out of scarcity. Like that's the word I was looking for. There's this scarcity mindset. If I do this, I'm giving up X, Y, and Z. And you know, think of it again from all the things that you'll gain. I think that's why whatever is happening now, call it the great resignation and this massive shift, I think probably people feel a little bit emboldened and empowered. It's like, well, there's been so much disruption, so many changes. Why not make a move? Why not consider it? I fully agree with you. I I am I fully agree. I I I believe that is exactly what is happening with the great resignation. And you know, good. Not that I want people to leave, and you know, I certainly don't want to lose people. But I do think people should pursue what they really want to do. You know, there's there is joy in finding, you know, the work that you love uh, in a space that you love, in a space that pulls draws out all the good things that that you are and that you can contribute, rather than staying the course in a job that might instead kind of um, snuff out that light a little bit. So it's interesting too, as a boss, um, man, I'd rather have somebody who's fully committed, excited, engaged, than just, you know, going through the motions, you know, I'd rather deal with the heartache of having to find the next person than I would, you know, put it, go along with somebody who's really not fully there. So yeah, I think you're onto something. If you're thinking about it, do it. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. bosses. I know you're going to be mad at me, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think to Mary, to your point, if you show 
care, right? And if you love people and try to try to care and show them that they matter and listen, I think that actually can make a difference. That can re-engage them paradoxically in the role that they're in. And so you don't have to lose them. So they True. Can. True. Right. And create that kind of excitement for what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yep. Well, Susan, this has been so inspiring. I've just loved hearing your perspectives and thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. How can people find you? Are you on LinkedIn or Twitter? How can they find you if they're mm-hmm. curious to hear more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I am on LinkedIn, Susan Goss Brown um, on LinkedIn and um, and I'm on I'm on Instagram at topnot 310 I am not on Facebook or Twitter. I don't have time to keep up. Um, <laughs> I just can't keep up, but um, I am on Instagram and would love for you to visit me on Instagram and, and for anyone who wants to learn more about the work we're doing with College Spring and with LLS, you can find it on Instagram as well. So. Terrific. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you. This has been really fun. Thank you so much, you guys. I would love to just add, I actually have done one marathon, trained for it through team and training back in 2004. Mm-hmm. And I think team and training is the most, what the most uh, largest number of widely organized kind of endurance training event and um, structure in the world, right? Through uh, the Benefits Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. It was, man, it was wired up and awesome back in 2004. So I can only imagine yeah. what it is now. Yeah, actually team and training. It's so funny. I'm actually doing the team and training marathon with Disney. I'm fundraising for that now, if anyone is interested. Awesome. <laughs> But I um donations welcome. Uh, donations welcome. I'm doing the rookie challenge, which means I've got a big goal in front of me. So uh, definitely donations welcome. But team and training is actually um, the the first uh, the first fundraiser that was put together to help with all of these walks and marathons, et cetera, to train athletes for other marathons. And um, uh, it is really, Really, probably the out of all of our campaigns at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, it is the it is the one that is the entry point for most people. So I, I have so many people that I've come across that have started uh, that started with team and, uh, team and training and that broadened their awareness to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So thank you, Brian. You <laughs> thank you, and thank you for sharing your journey and your story with us. We, it's yeah. really cool. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Great. Well, wishing you guys both a very, very happy holiday. Thank you, Susan.